Well, we are in the second week of this series that we are calling Rebuilding Church, and we are reflecting and examining Ezra and Nehemiah. We find ourselves in this cultural moment. I don't know if you feel this way. I feel this way. I talk to people who seem to feel this way. We're in this moment of grasping and trying to reorient ourselves and reorganize ourselves in a rapidly changing world. <laughs> Every time I feel that, that we have sort of gotten to the, quote, new normal, I'm like, wait a second. Nope, we still got, we're still waiting for whatever that new normal is going to be. And I'm beginning to wonder, will it ever even arrive? Has, this, has it arrived already? Are we already here in this moment that it's just going to be a constant reorienting and reorganizing our lives and to ground ourselves in what it looks like to be a church, to be the people of God in moments like these, we are looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which I'll explain and talk about a little bit here this morning. But to ground us this morning, if you have a Bible, you're welcome to open with me to Ezra chapter 1. Um, if you find that book on your first attempt, you get extra God points because it's like hidden back there behind Second Chronicles if you know where that one is. But... Uh, for all others, I'm going to read this, and it will be on here, the screen for you. We're going to read Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. In the first year, Cyrus was king of Persia. The Lord caused Cyrus to send an announcement to his whole kingdom and to put it in writing. This happened so the Lord's message spoken by Jeremiah would come true. He wrote, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, was given all the kingdoms of the earth to me, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. May God be with all of you who are his people. You are free to go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord and the God of Israel who is in Jerusalem. Those who stay behind, wherever they live, should support those who want to go. Give them silver and gold, supplies and cattle, special gifts for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family leaders of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites got ready to go to Jerusalem. Everyone God had caused to want to go to Jerusalem to build the temple of the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I'm not sure if any of you saw this news or not this past week, uh, but President Biden nominated Christopher T. Robinson as his nominee for ambassador extraordinary and plenipotentiary, I think that's how you say it, to the Republic of Latvia. The announcement didn't make national headlines, or really any headlines this morning. That's probably news to all of you that this nomination happened this past week. Either because most Americans couldn't find Latvia on a map. I know I certainly couldn't. I think it's in Europe somewhere. Right? Or maybe because we hear the word or the name Christopher Robinson and we immediately think of Winnie the Pooh, right? And we're just like, Christopher Robin is going to Latvia? What is going on right now, right? But the pronouncement that we get at the beginning of Ezra here from King Cyrus would have been similar in nature to the announcements of Christopher T. Robinson headed to Latvia. See, Israel is the primary character of the Old Testament. So any news about Israel seems significant to us as Bible readers. But from the perspective of history and that moment in time, they were just another conquered people. They're Latvia. 
You see, each week we gather to hear from the word of God. And the Bible is for us this revelation of God and, and God's salvation. So it ought to be a peculiar thing to us to find in our text this morning a decree that really meant nothing historically from a pagan king who lived thousands of years ago that wouldn't have made headlines then, and it certainly wouldn't make headlines now. It's just this random announcement that nobody would have cared about on the back pages of the newspaper about some people in a small nation who nobody could really identify or find on a map. And so the question to us is why? Why is this even here in the Bible? Why does this matter to us at all? But previous to these words that we have from Cyrus and in the book of Ezra, the people of God, as we talked about last week, landed in exile. Exile, by the way, is one of the most important themes or motifs of the Old Testament. You see, the God of Israel had freed his people from their captivity in Egypt in the first Exodus, recorded in the book of Exodus, and is well played by Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, right? Every Easter for us that we get to watch But God had called them out of their slavery to establish them in the promised land as his holy people out of whom they would bless the world. And only they don't end up being a holy people. Not the holy people they said that they were committed to becoming. If you ever committed to yourself to God only to find yourself in the same circumstances, making the same decisions years, maybe weeks later you might find some empathy for Israel. Israel's story in many ways is our story. But because of their lack of holiness and faithfulness to God, God has allowed them to be conquered by the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar, which is one of my favorite names in the Bible that you should never name your child, right? Nebuchadnezzar is just not something that you should name your child. But that conquest of the Babylonians in Israel, it comes in three waves. The first wave was in 598 B.C., and the the third final wave in 587, the Babylonians utterly destroy and burn down the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And the Babylon's tactic, the Babylonians' tactic, in order to combat resistance that they might receive from conquered people, apparently conquered people don't like to be conquered. And so they have to deal with this reality that these people we've conquered, that we've kind of brought into our empire, they want to fight back. They want to rebel. So how do we stomp that out? So when they conquered a people, what they would do is they would take the ruling class of those people from their nations and place them in their capital in Babylon. And the hope was that over time they would just assimilate into the culture and become little Babylonians themselves. You see, every culture has their own holidays and foods and languages and customs and dances and art that they like to participate in as a unique identity for them. And the Babylonian plan was, let's just take these conquered people, we'll assimilate them into our culture, they'll forget all of their former identity, and they'll be Babylonians. We see this happen, by the way, every time immigrant families like mine come into the United States. We no longer, I no longer speak the language I don't know the holidays or the customs or tradition or the rites of passage or becoming an adult that came from the Philippines. I don't know how to cook adobo or lumpia or bunset or any of those things. It's just gone. Filipino culture is dead with my generation, and I'm just an American. And this, by the way, sort of side note, extra credit for you, is what the book of Daniel is all about. 
You'll recall with me those famed stories of, of Daniel and the lion's den, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which are the Babylonian names, by the way, of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those all took place during the time of exile. They took place in Babylon, when God's people are in Babylon. And what we tend to do is we tend to frame those stories or think about those stories as these acts of faith by these individual people of resistance. But more specific to that, it is about maintaining the identity of God's people when the culture and the world around them are trying to assimilate them to have and take on a a different kind of identity. Daniel is thrown into the lion's den because he refuses to participate in the diet and the the, the food customs of the Babylonians. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are thrown into the fiery furnace because they refuse to worship a God other than Yahweh. And it is about faith, but it's about maintaining one's identity as the people of God. And so Israel finds themselves in exile. And the prophet Jeremiah assures them that their exile will only last 70 years. If you've been around the church for any length of time, you may have heard these really famous words that come from the prophet Jeremiah, where he writes, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. And surprising to most college students that these words were not primarily written to 21st century college students in America who are facing mounting college debt and uncertainty about where to go with their future career plans. The text was written to exiles who felt like God had cast them off for their sin, that their places of worship and their homes were utterly destroyed and burned, and they were wondering, do we have any future at all? And Jeremiah says, yes, you do. And so come the year 538, Just 60 years after the initial Babylonian conquest of Israel, there's a bigger bully that moves into the neighborhood. The Medo-Persian Empire, led by King Cyrus, conquers the Babylonian Empire. This is, by the way, how it has always been in history with empires. Empires emerge, and then they're wiped away. If you're a fan of UFC, which I'm sure all of you watch the UFC, right? Or it might, might just be Garrett and I. We need a text, by the way, about UFC fights again. It's been a few months. But you can remain a champion only for so long. Every champion and empire has a life cycle that involves defeat. And so the Persian Empire comes. They defeat the Babylonians. And this is where our text picks up this morning. You see, the Persian Empire has a very different way than the Babylonians to fend off rebellions by conquered people. Their strategy is to be a sort of benevolent tyrant. They allow conquered people to maintain their identity, to maintain their culture, to do their thing, celebrate their holidays, eat their food, speak in their languages, worship their gods, so long as you pay your taxes, right? This is what empires really want. Pay your taxes, support our military. When we need men to fight, you send them our way, and you could do you, right? But it's always done under the threat of potential violence and harm. But you get to maintain your cultural identity. And so when Cyrus and the Persians conquer the Babylonians, he makes this decree releasing the captives of Israel back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. But it's important for us to identify who the scripture recognizes 
as the initiator of Israel's redemption and freedom. There's a fundamental principle that the scriptures operate under, and that principle is this. Redemption is always an act of God. Redemption is always an act of God. It is easy for us to attribute what was performed by God to the instruments that God uses to perform the actions. But to confuse the two is to confuse the difference between a pawn and a king. See, on the surface in our text this morning, it looks as though Cyrus is the one freeing God's people from captivity. In fact, he even seems to think that he's the one freeing God's people from their captivity with his decree. But notice that the initiating act of salvation is God. In verse 1, Ezra writes, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia. And we must be reminded of this truth in our world today because in our celebrity culture, it is easy to attribute what ought to be cre- to pawns, what is to be credited to kings. We do this in our congregations sometimes with pastors. Last week, I was having a conversation with somebody who I'm totally not going to name, but they'll know exactly who, they're ta- who I'm talking about. Last week, I was uh, sitting with some friends after service, and they were telling me, one of the amazing things about coming and seeing you preach is that when you're up there, it feels like, like there's this spirit-filled activity going on, but when you come off the platform and we're just kind of conversing and hanging out, you don't strike me as a pastor. <laughs> I was like, I think you meant that. He was like, no offense or anything. And I was like, I'm not offended because that's exactly the kind of ministry that I'm trying to operate under is that for me, the hope in the act of preaching is not to draw attention to myself. So many times after a service, you get as a preacher or as a pastor, someone's like, man, pastor, you are a great preacher. And every time someone says that, I think to myself, that wasn't a good sermon. Because the hope for me, and not, not that you shouldn't say that. Come on, shower me with the compliments. No, I'm just kidding. The hope always is that I'm drawing attention to the goodness of our God. And the hope is that after a sermon, you think to yourself, not what a great preacher, but what a great God. Because we cannot, in our culture, confuse the instruments with the king. We do this all of the time in church in America right now. We think to ourselves, if we just have the right kind of pastor, then the church will be all right. If he's just the optimum sort of youthfulness, but like old, and he's a dynamic preaching, and he he loves kids' ministry, and we could get that same sort of personality with the Jordans and the tight skinny jeans leading worship in our services, then God might do something. But the thing that we have here in this story is that regardless of the instrument, God moves his purposes of salvation forward in history and in the world. And we cannot confuse with ourselves the difference between who is the primary actor of salvation. It is not pastors. It is not King Cyrus. It is King Jesus and King Jesus alone. And our congregations, I feel like I have to say this in our cultural moment, are tempted to do this same thing with politicians. The primary actor in salvation in history is not the politician who brings about God's purposes. 
the primary actor is God, who will advance his salvific purposes regardless. You see, Cyrus is not a good king. Cyrus is a bad man. He is a violent tyrant who is concerned about his own power, rule, and expansion of his kingdom. He thinks power and authority belong to him, and he's totally unaware of what a small man he actually is. The only reason for us to even mention him this morning or acknowledge him in history is because he was just sort of a pawn that God used in this part of God's story. And we would do well to note that the people of God do not sing praises or commit their loyalty to Cyrus. When Cyrus offers this decree, the people of God aren't like, oh, yes, King Cyrus, you're the man, thank you. We want to follow you and be Persians for the rest of our lives. No. The true king and the only king of God's people is Yahweh, revealed to us in the identity and person of Jesus Christ. And this is why this cross hovers over us on Sunday mornings. We are reminded that we lift our eyes to the king because he is seated on his throne and the throne upon which he exercises his authority and power is not in the form of military might or under the premise of threat. It is a cross of grace and of mercy and he is the one that we are loyal to and no one else. You see, God is the one who is at work in history and the world and when we confuse that, it becomes very problematic for churches and for the people of God. God alone brings salvation despite our failings and shortcomings. Praise be to God for this. Amen and amen. So if God is the one who is at work, what is it that God is doing? I want to name just two things here this morning that we identify in the text. How God is advancing his salvation in the world. And the first thing is this, that God is stirring people's hearts. God is stirring the hearts of his people even before they know that they are moving with him. I love in verse 5 this text, it says, Then the family leaders of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites got ready to go to Jerusalem. And then this little line, Everyone God had caused to want to go to Jerusalem to build the temple of the Lord. Some translations say everyone whose hearts were stirred by God to respond to him. God stirs people's hearts to be open to his leading and call. And I wonder in what ways, if at all, God is stirring you this morning. One of my favorite things as a pastor, or even just as a Christian, is to hear the stories of people and how they came to faith. As I've listened and I've, I've read about people coming to know Jesus for the very first time, there's often this stirring that you can name somewhere in their story and you can hear it in the stories of people in our own congregation. We have on our, our podcast, by the way, we have a podcast. If you didn't know this, give us, you know, likes and subscribes and review. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. That's really lame. But we have this podcast and in part of it, we, we've had these interviews with people in our congregation to tell their stories of faith. And every story that I've heard so far always involves some element of like having an unsettledness in one's life and wanting more, wanting something different from life. Several months ago, I, I sat down with Mary Lee Ings, and she talks about this experience as a high school student on a Sunday night church service. Anybody miss Sunday night church? 
nobody. Nobody misses Sunday night church. And she remembers hearing a preacher and she felt as this end of it is high school, this 15-year-old kid, this unsettledness of wanting more out of her life. And she didn't know how to articulate it. But it was God stirring in her saying, I want to lead you to someplace different than where you're at currently right now. I, I love this story. I sat down with Elaine, and many of you have probably heard this story, Elaine Cavaletto in our church. Her daughter was getting married in our congregation, and she wasn't a part of our church yet. And so she came to make sure that it was appropriate because Elaine is the matriarch. Amen? Amen. Not just for her family, but of our church. The following Sunday, she told her husband, I got to go check out that church just one more time to make sure that this is an appropriate venue for our child to get married in. And that Sunday, she made her way down to the altar. And the way that she articulates it is, I just knew that there was something missing in my life that I needed. There was a stirring in my heart. See, God is at work even before we're able to name it or respond. God is laying the groundwork, tilling the soil that the, the sprout of faith might emerge from, the, from our hearts and our lives. I love this story that we're reading in our home groups in this book. I'm going to read part of it to you because I find it just so amazing. There's a, he writes these words. He says, I once met with a group of Christian pastors who live in a place where it is difficult to be a follower of Christ. It is not illegal to be a Christian, but there are strict national laws against proselytizing. That means you're not supposed to like, try and convert people. Overt Christian evangelism is severely punished with imprisonment and even death. And I asked the pastors how evangelism happens in such a hostile and dangerous environment. And after a few moments of silence, a pastor answered, dreams. I did not understand, so I asked him to explain. The man responded, not dozens, but hundreds of our neighbors are having dreams in the night. The risen Christ appears to them in all of his beauty and majesty. When they awake, they come asking questions. Tell us about this man who comes to us in the night. And when they ask, it is our obligation to answer. You see, regardless of what is going on in the world, God is stirring the hearts of people and he will do it through preachers, he will do it through dreams, but he will pre prepare people's hearts to receive the grace that they need to be whole in their lives. But God just doesn't stir the hearts of people who don't know him. God stirs people's hearts to be on mission for him. I'm going to run out of time. That's okay. Larry Weber, longtime Nazarene and a part of our church, him and his wife, by the way, Stella, we haven't seen for a few months because she's receiving uh, chemo treatments for cancer. We had shared several months ago that she had procedure and part of that was to remove a tumor and she's undergoing treatments right now. And they're not supposed to be in crowds. So I, I went over and uh, visited them this week. But a couple months ago, Larry had stopped by the office and you could tell that he was just burdened by something. And so I invited him in. And those who know Larry here know that he's a pretty just like right here guy. Like the idea of him being distressed or frustrated or anything just seems out of the ordinary. And when we sat in my office, he began to explain to me that he was being troubled by John 15. Where Jesus says to his disciples, he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. 
And if you remain in me and I in you, you will produce much fruit. And he thought to himself, I don't know if my life produces fruit. Really frustrated and burdened by this reality, I don't see people coming into the faith as a result of my faith. And so I sat there quietly, not really knowing what to say. By the way, pastors rarely know what to say. We're just kind of like, okay, um, here's some advice, you know, or I don't know. I'm just kind of shooting in the dark. Lord, help me. Well, when I went to go visit, fast forward two months to last week, when I went to go visit Larry and Stella, he sat with me and I was like checking in with him, like, how about, how's all that stuff going? He's like, you will never believe what happened last week. And I was like, Lay it on me, Larry. He said, my neighbor that I've known for years and years got pancreatic cancer. And he was going quick. And I thought to myself one morning, I ought to go share the faith with him. And he's like, I don't do that. I didn't want to do it. I'm not interested in doing it. I think it's kind of weird when Christians do it. But I just felt this burden burning in me to go over and share Jesus with him. And so he's like, I grabbed like a tract that I could read to him because I didn't know if I would have the words. And I went to go sit with him and his daughter let me into his room and I asked him kind of how he's doing, did that whole thing. And I asked if I could read this tract of the gospel about Jesus to him. He said, I read it once and the man goes, can you read that to me again? And Larry goes, so I read it a second time. And then Larry says, do you want to make a commitment to Jesus? And the man goes, I do. And so Larry prayed with him there. And this man placed his faith in Jesus. Three days later, he passed away. See, God, church, stirs hearts of his people to be on mission, to be seeking a lost world. How is God Stirring your heart this morning. But there's a second thing that God does. God calls us to a home we've never known before. God calls us to a home that we have never known before. A few months ago, man, I got a lot of stories of people in our church this morning. I don't know what's up with that. A few months ago, I went to visit Don uh, Edwards at his house. Was it three months ago, a couple months ago? I don't know. Don lives about as far away in Oxnard as you possibly can live from here. Uh, I was telling Paige, I was like, when you go to their house and you step out of the front yard, you just see the fields and the one going to Malibu right over there. It is a nice, nice view. But I went over to go see Don, and I had never been to that part of Oxnard, and I was getting hungry. It was past lunchtime, and I was like, what kind of food places are around here? And he told me, that there's this, uh, this supermarket down the street that has great lumpia, which for those who don't know what that is, it's like a Filipino egg roll. I'm convinced that every culture has some version of the egg roll, right? We got burritos, we got egg rolls, we got lumpia, chimichangas. Like we all have some sort of protein wrapped in something and fried, right? Like we all have that thing. And I had had lumpia for a while. I'm Filipino, if you didn't catch that. And I was like, man, I'm gonna go get some lumpia. So I drive over to Island Pacific Supermarket over there in Oxnard, if you've been there. And as soon as I pulled into the parking lot, it was very evident and clear to me that this is not like the grocery stores I usually do my grocery shopping at. The parking lot is about as eroded as a parking lot ought to be eroded when you pull in. 
You're like, oh, we're not in Ventura anymore. And there's kind of trash everywhere. I got out of the car, and it's like, it's like being in the Philippines. Like, everyone is Filipino that's walking around. And I'm like, this is wild, man. I didn't know there's so many Filipinos in the area. Come on, these are my people. And you walk into Island Pacific Supermarket, and it is just not nice, right? Like, you walk in, and they got pallets of food that has yet to be shelved, and it's not quite as brightly lit, and the fluorescent bulbs are exposed, so you can see those things. There's a bunch of tables that are like old coffee bean or something, tables sitting over to the left. And walk in, and everyone's speaking Tagalog, which is language that most Filipinos speak. And I don't speak Tagalog. Like, that's not my thing. And so I'm just hearing words and conversations that I don't quite understand. I don't know anybody. I've never been here. This is unfamiliar. And yet, when I walked into this place, I just felt like I was at home. It was a weird experience for me. I was like, these are like my aunties and my uncles and my grandmas and my grandpas. They reminded me of what it was like growing up. It was like, this is like my family. I never spoke to Gog. I still don't speak to Gog. And yet there's something about being here that made me feel at home. I called my dad afterwards and I was like, dad, do you ever have this experience? He's like, he's not very like, he's like, dude, you're weird. What are you talking about, right? But it just felt like home. I've never been there before, but it felt like home. And this is, this is the journey of faith experientially for people. Is that God calls you to places that you have never been before, but that is your home. God calls Abraham, who lived the first basically 100 years of his life in this one spot, and he says, I actually want you to move and go somewhere else. He calls the Israelites who had lived in Egypt in their oppression for 400 years, generation after generation after generation. It's the only world, the only kind of uh, location that they knew as home, and God calls them to the promised land. You will be a different kind of people in a different kind of place. This is the call to the disciples of Jesus and to you this day. What you have been called to, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, is not a place that any of us have been before, and yet God calls us by faith to journey toward heaven. And there is this sense within us, there's this beautiful prayer by one of my favorite theologians historically, Augustine. He says, may our hearts be restless until they rest in thee. And the reason for the prayer, what sort of, the meaning behind the prayer is that there's a sense in within us that we're just not at home until we're with God. And that restlessness that you experience and feel in your life is a restlessness because you're not moving towards your home in God and his kingdom. And the beautiful thing about this call to home, this call to the kingdom, this call to Jesus and follow him is that everyone is invited. See, what you discover, you hear the story of me talking about like walking to this grocery store and you're like, well, you're a Filipino. You grew up with all this. Of course you felt at home when you walked in there. But the experience of faith is when you open yourself up to God, you realize like, oh, this is, I'm supposed to be with God. This is how I've been designed to be is with God. And that call comes to you this morning, church. 
I love that God calls us home. May we respond in faith this day. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, truthfully, I went to that, um, that grocery store yesterday to pick up a bunch of lumpia to like bring here as an illustration for the church. And when I got there, they're like, we're out of lumpia and we're not making any more today. I was like, oh, excuse me. So I got a bunch of adobo instead and I left it in my refrigerator at home. But there's something about food and meals that signify to us home. You probably all have that familiar dish that your mom made, right? It's always mom's cooking or dad's cooking. Where When they make it, it doesn't matter how good it was, is, whatever. You eat it and you're like, ah, this is home. Well, we come to the table every single Sunday to participate in our family's favorite meal. We call it communion. It is the bread and the juice that reminds us that we are one with one another as a body of Christ, but we are also at home with the God revealed in Christ Jesus. And our, our family is always expanding. Everyone is welcome to the table. Whether you were near God or far from God, whether you've been here five times or 5,000 times, the table is open to you this morning. So I want to invite our ushers to come forward this morning. And they're going to distribute the elements of our meal, the, the, the adobo, the lumpia of our meal this morning. I wish it was lumpia, to be honest. But I invite you to receive them and hold on to them, and we'll take them together as a family.